Blog Talk Radio. You're listening to Starseed Radio Academy, empowering Starseed to better serve the planet. Welcome to Starseed Radio Academy. It's summer solstice tonight, Tuesday, June 20th, 2017, and I'm your host, Ariel Taylor, with my co-hosts, Lavendar and Anastasia. We have two Starseed Quests to Arkansas coming up. The first one is in August the 18th through the 21st for the Harmonic Convergence, and there will be a total solar eclipse as well as a new moon for that one. And the second one is for Pleiadian Lineup, which is November 17th through the 20th, and another new moon for that one as well. Our starseed quests seem to be escalating to a new higher level each time, and it's wonderful to have so many returning. More than half of our last group were alumni. So this is a soul family reunion, and only starseeds with at least one natal marking at galactic degree are eligible. And this event has been redesigned to cover four days, making it much more affordable than the week-long quests. And for more info, please write to crystals, that is plural, C-R-Y-S-T-A-L-S, at starseedhotline.com. And I'll send you all the info you need. Our guest this evening is author Eileen Workman, who graduated from Whittier College with a bachelor's degree in political science and minors in economics, history, and biology. She spent 16 years in the financial services industry as a senior vice president and financial advisor for Smith Barney. After experiencing a profound spiritual awakening in 2007, Ms. Workman left the financial services industry and dedicated herself to writing Sacred Economics, the Currency of Life, as a means for inviting us to question our longstanding assumptions about the nature of capitalism. Her book places particular focus on the more destructive aspects of late-stage corporatism. Raindrops of Love for a Thirsty World is Ms. Workman's second nonfiction offering, and in it she summons the wisdom in, of the life force that flows within all of us and invites it to speak with us in its own words. The book inspires a healthy sense of self-love in the reader to propel them beyond suffering into the fullest, most beautiful expression of themselves. Raindrops invites each of us to freely enter into our species' adulthood, I love that phrase, by encouraging us to trust that we are indeed creations of the awesome and regenerative power of eternal love made flesh and bone and heart and mind through the infinite creativity that is life itself, and that our primary responsibility is to awaken to the fact that we exist to be the unleashed power of love in this world in action. You can check out her website, which is EileenWorkman.com. At the top of the show, it's Anastasia's Starseed News, bringing topics of interest to starseeds that you won't hear in the mainstream. And we'd like to thank Jada and Fiona for hosting the switchboard tonight for anyone who may have a question or comment for our guest. You can check out our online Starseed community at starseedhotline.ning.com, and it's a safe place to connect with other Starseeds, thanks to Tammy's dedication and help with our forum. You can download our shows on iTunes or right here on Blog Talk. 
And if you'd like to show your support of our program, please click follow on our page here at Blog Talk, and you'll get our weekly show notices. And the toll-free number for StarseedHotline.com is 888-881-0881. The Stage 1 Starseed confirmations are based on Lavendar's discovery of star markings and your natal astrological chart, and the Stage 2 session is a one-on-one phone session available with Lavendar, Anastasia, or myself. And for those who need healing of any kind, emotional, physical, spiritual, for yourself or your pets, whatever, Tammy's powerful remote sessions will make a difference. If you have a birthday coming up, you don't want to miss out on your 10 hours of power, so you can find out when that happens by requesting your solar return timing. And please keep in mind that we do have a two- or three-month waiting list for interpretations of those charts, but you can get the timing really quickly. So first this evening, I would like to introduce Anastasia with her ever-popular Starseed News. Let me get your mic open, sweetie. Here we go. There it is. Okay. Hey, how you doing? Hey, Ariel. Good evening, everyone. It's great to be with you. Happy solstice. (laughs) Yeah. Tonight is the shortest night of the year in the Northern Hemisphere. This is a brief stretch of darkness that heralds the beginning of summer tomorrow morning at 424 Universal Time. And meanwhile, in the Southern Hemisphere, everybody, winter is beginning at the same time. (laughs) Now, when it gets winter up on this side of of the globe, I'm always kind of regretting that down south they're having summer. But you know, life and nature is fair. It makes us take turns. So winter in the <laughs> southern hemisphere and summer for us. Yahoo! Well, the, cur- the current two sunspots that are extant on the sun right now pose no threat for strong solar flares. So all is calm in the sky with the sun. But speaking of the sun, it's hot. It's hot, hot, hot in Phoenix, Arizona. It's so hot that planes can't fly. You've probably heard this on mainstream news. But this is out of the Arizona Republic. And they are saying that the extreme heat forecast for Phoenix today has caused the cancellation of 20 American Airlines flights out of Sky Harbor International Airport. According to a statement from American Airlines, the American Eagle regional flights use an aircraft that has a maximum operating temperature of 118 degrees. And today's forecast for Phoenix included a high of 120 degrees, and the flights that are affected were to take off between 3 and 6 p.m. Mountain Time. Well, customers affected were told to contact American Airlines for rebooking options or perhaps a refund. Now, I was wondering about this when I heard about it, and this article does explain that extreme heat affects a plane's ability to take off. Hot air is less dense than cold air, and the hotter the temperature, the more speed a plane requires to lift off. A runway might not be long enough to allow a plane to achieve the necessary extra speed, thus the grounding of these flights. And uh, uh, sad news about uh, salmon. Uh, North American salmon are imperiled. They say the the, uh, salmon decline is worsening. Um, They say that fewer uh, of North America's Atlantic salmon are making it back to the rivers to spawn, which bodes poorly for the future of this fish, according to an international conservation group. Now, Atlantic salmon were once abundant in the rivers of New England and Atlantic Canada, but they say that they are either endangered or have disappeared entirely uh, in parts of both areas. Now, salmon are born in rivers. They swim to the Atlantic and return to their natal river to spawn, to lay eggs and have their babies. 
Well, they say that the New Brunswick, Canada-based Atlantic Salmon Federation released a report this month that says total estimated returns of the fish to North America in 2016 was a little more than a half million salmon. That's a 27% decrease from the year before. Well, there was a 6.1 magnitude earthquake that hit south of the Fiji Islands. Uh, uh, Let's see, this was just yesterday, two days ago, according to the USGS, a 6.1. And uh, there's a phenomenon that's been occurring over the last couple of years that I really don't report a lot about. I I eyeball it, and I would really uh, sort of fill your ears with report after report of this, but that's uh, about people being struck by lightning. And um, whether or not this is a new phenomenon, I really don't know how much recording has been done over maybe the last 50 years with lightning striking humans, but certainly in the last couple of years there's been an awful lot of report in the media which would indicate that this is on the rise. And I suspect that some people reporting this may um, attach this meaning or the meaning of this phenomena to uh, cosmic changes and atmospheric changes on the planet, on the planet, perhaps uh, magnetic changes and such. But I'm reporting this story tonight because of the uh, really high number. Uh, according to fizz.org, lightning killed 22 people in 48 hours across Bangladesh. That's right, 22 people in 48 hours, and this was reported today. And this was uh, a week after monsoon rains triggered a series of landslides in the country. Now, experts are saying that climate change is exacerbating the problem with lightning striking people. They also blame deforestation and the loss of taller trees like palms that used to act like lightning conductors. But that's not the only story uh, being reported in the media about lightning uh, striking people. It is really... You can look every day and find stories about lightning striking people all across the world. So anyway, I'm sharing that with you. 22 people in 48 hours is just a tremendous amount of lightning strikes that uh, hurt people. Well, we have a volcano erupting in Japan. It's the Nishinoshima, the Nishinoshima volcano. It's erupting again on the uh, Ogasawara Island in Japan. Uh, it's erupting after about the year and a half since the last eruption. They say that the level of volcanic activity is about the same as the 2014 eruptions uh, that saw the island's surface area actually grow due to uh, volcanic lava. Now, based on the analysis of gases that are emanating from the volcano in this island chain, the Institute uh, of Volcanology there believes that there's a steady supply of magma and the eruption is likely to continue for some time. That volcano is spewing out about 500 metric tons of sulfur dioxide per day. And they say that that is uh, a lot. And in uh, Russia, the Bezimiani volcano has erupted. Um, That was uh, through a major explosion that took place just a few days ago, uh, the 16th of June. It was propelling ash 40,000 feet above sea level. It's now considered to be one of the most active volcanoes in the world, and it erupted for the first time in recorded history in 1955. Previously to that time, it was considered to be extinct. Now, within six months, it's produced a total volume of eruptive products over three point, uh, excuse me, three cubic kilometers. And in comparison, the 1980 eruption of Mount St. Helens produced 1.3 cubic kilometers of ash. So that's just a 
double, a little over double of what Mount St. Yeah. Helens produced. Well, um, gosh, tough story to say. Uh, it's been reported that 23,000 ta- 23, turtles, seabirds, and dolphins have now been found dead during the past two weeks along the coast of Brazil. Another 2,500 were rescued in poor health conditions and have been collected for treatment. The main causes of deaths have been the ingestion of garbage, they say, and accidents with fishing nets. Now, we're talking about 23,000 here. Okay. Um, the, the biggest victims are the green turtles and something called the little fox, which is a migratory seabird, and the porpoises and the gray dolphins. And also, that's not all. Uh, the South China Sea Network has reported a massive die-off of fish in a fish farm in China, and experts are blaming hypoxia. Uh, but that's not all. The Huffington Post reported uh, last Wednesday that hundreds of dead seabirds and dead and sea lions, uh, dead sea lions, are washing up on the beaches in Southern California. Since April, uh, dying marine animals, birds have been washing up in mass on Southern California's beaches. In fact, the Ventura County Star reported that dozens of uh, sick or dead sea lions had been spotted in Ventura and Santa Barbara counties. And several other dying or dead animals, including loons, pelicans, and even dolphins, have also been found. Red tide is thought to be the reason for these deaths. Well, moving on to our science section. Um, Here's a weird one. Hitachi develops a breath analyzer smartphone that has facial recognition. What's that all about? Well, according to this article out of the Japan Times, Hitachi LTD has developed a smartphone-connected device to prevent drunken driving by detecting alcohol from a person's breath while employing facial recognition technology to prevent the person from using a substitute. I read that paragraph and I scratched my head. What did they mean, substitute? Well, as I read on, you'll understand. Well, the device allows taxi and parcel delivery services to make sure their drivers are alcohol-free. Hitachi will begin a field test in August with employees at its subsidiary in preparation to commercialize this product. Now, um, the device needs to be attached to a smartphone and is operated through an application on the phone. But when the driver breathes into the device before getting into the vehicle... The smartphone camera takes a photo of the person. The device will confirm if the person who took the breath test is the same one driving by having the smartphone take another facial image once the driver is aboard, thus uh, eliminating the possibility of a a swap. Now, you know, I never thought of cab drivers or bus drivers or truck drivers actually not doing their jobs, that maybe they get someone else to take their place at the last minute. Had you ever heard of that? Well, apparently that might be a problem in Japan, so they're trying to make sure that the person that drives is the person that's cleared to drive and that that person that's cleared to drive has not been drinking, and then it double-checks once they get behind the wheel of the car. All right, well, that seems obsessive-compulsive, but there it is. Anyway, uh, a (laughs) smartphone with a breathalyzer and that takes your picture to make sure you're you're who you say you are. Well, um, if you'll recall, it's been several months back. I don't even remember how long. It might be longer than that. I talked about lead in chocolate. Do you remember that, Ariel? Yeah, I sure do. The lead, the lead content of chocolate bars, yes. I think of that every time I'm tempted. Well, uh, this article comes out of the net. It uh, says, lead in the U.S. food supply. Is it decreasing our IQ? 
Well, the Environmental Advocacy Group, Environmental Defense Fund, on June 15th, released a study about dietary lead exposure and a focus on food intended for babies and young children. Now, using an FDA database of food samples, EDF reported some pretty worrying numbers, most remarkably in fruit juice samples intended for children. For example, 89% of the baby food grape juice samples had detectable levels of lead in them. 89% of grape juice samples. And as uh, uh, you know, the writers of this article are saying, good grief, this really raises important concerns about food supply safety. And uh, since this EDF primarily focused on exposure, which means is the lead detectable or isn't it, you know, um, what about the lead that isn't detectable? And if it's not detectable, how about uh, over increasing periods of time, you know, increasing exposure to lead? And uh, some studies now are indicating that uh, uh, we may be exposed to sufficient amounts of lead to uh, create IQ loss and um, uh, there are studies that indicate that that is indeed happening. Well, well we can spend the whole show um, on that one. <laughs> yeah, really, we should, probably should. We probably should. Yeah. Okay, well, a world first. Scientists create liquid light at room temperature. Now, this is from Science Alert. and the art, Now, this is kind of a complex article, and I tried to shorten it to make it fairly understandable, so uh, let's see how this turns out, okay? I'll try to uh, make this clear as, clear as mud. <laughs> Maybe not quite as clear as liquid light, but okay, so um, this matter, this liquid light matter is both a superfluid, which has zero friction and viscosity, and a kind of Bose-Einstein condensate, sometimes described as the fifth state of matter, and it allows light to actually flow around objects and corners. Now, regular light behaves like a wave, and uh, by the way, sometimes like a particle, but it usually travels or always travels in a straight line, and that's why our eyes can't see around corners or objects. But under extreme conditions, light can also act like a liquid and actually flow around objects. Now, I'm telling you right now as a clairvoyant, there is such a thing as liquid light. In fact, that's what That's the substance of the universe, is liquid light. So these scientists are treading really near to the realm of metaphysics. And I've often said, today's physicists are the mystics of our time. But anyway, to continue with the article. Bose-Einstein condensates are interesting to physicists because in this state, the rules, the rules of physics, switch from classical to quantum physics, and matter starts to take on more wave-like properties They are formed at temperatures close to absolute zero and exist for only fractions of a second. But in this particular studies, researchers are reporting that they have made a Bose-Einstein condensant at room temperature by using a Frankenstein mashup of light and matter. Wow. Wow. If I were young, I would be plumbing into probably my fifth physics degree because that's what it takes to keep up with what's going on out there. But to think that physicists are touching uh, discoveries of liquid light is amazing because I can assure you that light is liquid. They could have asked me that, (laughs) but I couldn't have given them the algorithm. Now, 
that wouldn't do them much good. Well, our last uh, uh, piece for tonight is just wonderful. This comes from a, a, a news company out of Australia. And elephants uh, have been seen springing into action to save a drowning calf at a South Korea zoo. Well, if, ever, if elephants never forget, then this swift rescue of a drowning elephant calf, a baby elephant, by two adult elephants will be a lesson in pool safety. This family of gentle giants will be sure to remember. CCTV footage from the Grand Park Zoo in uh, South, uh, excuse me, South, South Korea sorry, shows the calf playfully dunk its trunk into the large pool of water besides one of the adult elephants before uh, splashing into the enclosure pool. It fell in. Playing in the water, lost its sense of uh, awareness, and fell kerplunk into the pool. Well, the panicked adult elephant watched helplessly as this baby elephant struggled to keep its head and trunk above the water. Meanwhile, another uh, adult elephant nearby heard the splash and within seconds ran to its partner's side to join in on the rescue attempt. Well, they were unable to reach their baby calf with their trunks, so the two adult elephants dashed into the pool towards the calf and pushed it up against the side of the pool. And from there, they were able to use their trunks to hold this baby up, head and trunk, above the water. Is that wonderful? Oh, God, is that that melt your heart? Is that? Oh man! Oh, life is wonderful. Life is beautiful. Uh, love is everywhere, and uh, there, In there it is, species. right there. <clears throat> In every, every species. species. Absolutely. So, just makes you fills you up, doesn't it? That sure puts does. us in the right perspective. That gets us in touch with who we are. And so I humbly accept the teaching, <laughs> and I pass that on to each one of you. So from my heart to yours, all of you have a beautiful week, and uh, we'll talk again next time. Okay, Ariel? Okay. Well, thank you so much for bringing us the Starseed News, Anastasia. We look forward to it every week. So um, with that, I am going to um, move on. So we'll talk to you next week, sweetie. And uh, let me get um, Lavender's mic open and our guest, Eileen Workman. Let me get your mic open. Okay, ladies, welcome to the show, Eileen. We're so happy to have you with us. Oh, thank you for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. Lavender, are you there, ready to go? I'm here, ready to go. Okay, well, take it away. Okay. So, Raindrops of Love for a Thirsty World. I love this book. And I noticed that you um, wrote it by life as shared with Ellen Workman. Tell us a little bit about how this book came about and what is the message of your book? Well, it's really kind of interesting to me how it came about. Um, my experience and the reason that I credited the book to life as the author was that this material began to flow inside of me as a higher voice began speaking to what I would call the local personality or the self that I know as Eileen. And for me, it was a really fascinating process of self-discovery to allow this strange new voice 
to get a foothold inside my head and my heart and begin talking to me in ways that were very different from the ways I had spoken to myself my whole life. So in, in a sense, the book was me repatterning the inner dialogue that I have with myself. I would say it's like a full octave higher from the way that I used to speak with myself. And by writing down what these conversations, these internal conversations were, my hope was that I would create a process or an invitation for readers to have a similar experience within themselves. And my sense was that most of us are conditioned from a very, very early age to speak to ourselves in what I would call not nice ways. We, we tend to scold ourselves. We tend to judge ourselves. We can be extremely harsh and critical with ourselves. And conversely, we can also be very self-indulgent and, and we can create excuses for things that we do and rationalizations that come out of this sense of victimhood. And I wasn't finding that those ways of talking to myself were supportive of me bringing forward the best in me and I needed to do something different. So that was the intent of the book and, and the purpose behind it and then writing it down and sharing it with the world because the benefits have been so awesome that I've experienced internally. What what happened to you that uh, had you change your world completely, leaving uh, Wall Street and leaving the, the life that you knew before? Did you have um, an accident or did you have some kind of aha moment that you could share with us? Sure. Yeah, for me, it was a long time coming, you know, working in the financial services world, being really embedded in what I would call the power dominator patriarchy and the whole monetary system. It was a very toxic system. And I was extraordinarily successful at what I did. I was good at what I did. But the more money that I made and the more successful I became, the unhappier I was with the world around me and the way that I was expressing in it. And even though I tried my best to bring my highest and best self to that business, the very nature of the business itself was toxic. There was so much greed and so much fear and so much corruption and, and criminality, downright criminality underneath it all that I couldn't hide from anymore. And ultimately, I had what, what the medical community would call a, a, you know, a breakdown, a mental breakdown. But for me, it was really what I would call a spiritual emergency to where I just reached a place of realization that my spirit was dying in that environment. And my mind had a jillion reasons for me to stay in that business and continue doing what I did. And my heart had a jillion reasons for me to stop. And they went to war. And my body was the battlefield. And my spirit was the prize. And ultimately, my heart won. Um, my mind broke. <laughs> and I found myself completely depleted of any desire to be part of the existing social paradigm anymore and stepped out of it after I recovered from the breakdown and have spent the last seven or eight years really focusing on seeing how I can do myself differently, the deconditioning and repatterning myself and using what I learned to help others. As I was reading your book, I was very aware that you had tapped into your higher mind. But I also, um, as I was reading along, I'd go, oh, I think she had a drop by. It was like an energy that would come and, and visit you for short periods of time. Did you have that feeling when you were writing? Yes, it's really interesting that the voice 
that I heard, and, and I think we all have these access points. You know, I, I want to make it clear that this wasn't just me having a special experience of kind of cosmic communion. I think it's possible for all of us. But the way that I experience it, it's, it's as if the brain is a transmitter and receiver and most of the time we're dialed into, you know, I'm dialed into K. Hey Eileen, and that's my little local personality channel. And the broader bandwidth I can access is K. Hey Humanity. You know, and there's, there's a bandwidth there. And then there's all the different species. And as we continue to dial up and down and learn how to listen for those different bandwidths, I believe we can tap into cosmic bandwidths that are so far outside the realm of what we would normally have access to that these incredible bright bursts of fully realized wisdom can come to us, you know, in, in like a multidimensional realization. And, and then we do our best to try to bring it down into some sort of linear language that makes sense. But that's how I was experiencing it multiple times. Yeah. I'd like to have your permission to read a little bit from your book, okay? Oh, absolutely, sure. It's on page 247. It's called Embracing Patience. I think our listeners would really enjoy hearing this to give, give a sense of how you write. Beloved, imagine that you are a water molecule and that you've been trapped in a massive block of ice. Then one day a miracle happens. A ray of sunlight caresses the ice block just where you happen to be and you feel your entire self begin to melt. At first, you might be frightened because you have no idea why this new experience is happening to you. In time, however, you relax into your changing state and enjoy your newfound freedom to move and express yourself more fluidly than before. At some point, you begin to grasp that this remarkable change has occurred as the result of a specific set of conditions and that you had nothing to do with it beyond being an open, witnessing presence within the change. You then begin to wonder about the potentials of your new state. You grow curious about what you can do, and you wonder with whom you might share your new capacities. You turn to friends and family members to, to seek their affirmation of your new gift. You trusted them to support you in the past, so you assume that this time will be much like the rest. Yet this time you encounter a set of frozen, frightened molecules. This time your beloveds treat you as if you're a stranger, perhaps dangerous to yourself or even to them. Some turn away, worried that you might infect them with whatever disease you've contracted. Others deny their own senses and seek to convince themselves that you remain unchanged. What a shock you feel when you realize you will not receive validation from those who have yet experienced this shift for themselves. Even so, you slide beyond the frozen forms of those you have loved all your life, and you begin to probe wider and deeper into the ice block. At some point, you become aware of the existence of others, perhaps many others, especially those near the outer edge of the ice block, who are experiencing the same shift you're undergoing. And you find yourself developing the capacity to notice when other frozen molecules seem on the verge of melting. You further realize that you have the ability, when you approach those beings kindly and with love and compassion, to gift them a tiny bit of, of your warmth so they can draw upon your heat and melt themselves. I love the way you wrote about the ice block. And it mm -hmm. goes on and on in that same chapter, talking about how you finally get to the river, the mm -hmm. river of life. Mm -hmm. 
Thank you. Yeah, that was that was a fun metaphor for me. One of the things that I find is that these experiences are so transcendent and they are so far removed from what ordinary language can touch that oftentimes the only way to be able to invite resonance is to use a metaphor that somebody can go, aha, I know what that feels like. I, I can step in that ice, little ice molecule space. I've been there. And so that's what the hope is, is that by writing in metaphor, you know, people can see themselves and their own unique experiences in those metaphors and not get tripped up by, you know, some of the language that we might have difficulty with. We think, you know, I think a word means one thing and you think it means another thing, and then suddenly we're saying we haven't had the same experience when actually it is the same experience. We just have different ways of verbalizing it. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, I have a lot of clients that that say this to me. They say, you know, since I have gotten into metaphysics and doing this work, my family treats me like a stranger. Or the -hmm. people that I used to, you know, run around with, they don't ask me to come to their house anymore. I'm finding this a lot. When people grab a hold of the the light of of new understandings, that sometimes uh, the people around them, will just disappear or or just be in conflict with them. Is this what you have found throughout your your journey? Yes, I, I do think that because this this feels to me like what we're undergoing is a shift. It's it's a qualitative shift in our internal consciousness. And it's an evolutionary movement that that's moving all of humanity right now to some degree. But it's it's awakening in some of us more than in others faster and more intensely. And when we have these kinds of abrupt awakening experiences and then we look around and we encounter people that we love who have have not had that inner shift and can't really comprehend what we're experiencing, it generates a lot of fear, uh, particularly because we start to make choices that are different from the choices that we were conditioned to make as part of the existing power dominator paradigm. And that's threatening to the the substructures of the culture. So it causes people to want to put you back in your place or, you know, move away from you because you feel dangerous to their well being. And I suppose that there's some truth there. And in a sense there is some danger to the status quo as more of us shift into this deeper self-love and cosmic life-love, we can no longer participate actively in systems that are life-negating. Yeah. So what do, you, what do you see happening for humanity in the coming years, especially with regards to technology and why? Mm, good question. There's a couple of things at play, but, you know, I, I'd like to frame it because I see this as an evolutionary process I like to say that what we're doing right now is transitioning from species adolescence to species adulthood. And that transformation involves moving out of this sort of self-centeredness, complete you know, self-consciousness that is the adolescent mindset into a much more expansive outward focus on what we can bring into the world, which is what we do as adults. We, we give birth. And so as adult consciousness emerges, it wants to give birth to its own creativity, to its own latent capacities 
just for the sheer joy of seeing what's possible, not because it wants anything in return. It wants to experience itself at that higher level. So that's the impulse. Um, technology is creating the opportunity for the acceleration of that process in a number of ways. And, and here I'll draw on some sacred economics, my first book, in the sense that I have always said that if necessity is the mother of invention, then surplus is its father. And we need surplus time and energy and opportunity and will in order to experiment with novel ideas so that we can evolve and change. And that's really, I think, what the technology that we're creating now is gifting to us, is the opportunity to move out of the physical labor of the workplace that requires us all to put in 40 hours a week so we can earn our daily bread and do it over and over and over again. As the machines and the technology take over the work, we're freeing up 7-plus billion consciousnesses to actively come together and lovingly collaborate on how to distribute what the machines and the technology is producing in a more humane and loving way so that each of us has greater capacity to self-evolve. That's where we're headed if we allow it to go that way. Yeah. What I'm finding with the technologies with Skype and being able to talk to people all over the world, I realize that you know, we've lived, loved, and died with a lot of people throughout many, many lifetimes that we've been here. And the technology now gives us the opportunity to connect with some of these people that may live in foreign foreign lands. That's what I'm finding. Oh, absolutely. And, and one of the beauties of that is that as the technology permeates the culture, and particularly with the young people, Things that happen in the world on the other side of the world that 30, 40 years ago when, you know, when I was young, those events happened and they happened to strangers far away. We had very little knowledge of the experience. We got it, you know, limited secondhand. And it was a lot of otherness. You know, those other people are starving. Those other people are having a war. And now when we have friends that we talk to on a regular basis on Facebook or through Instagram or these other social media networks that we use, and there's an explosion in Pakistan, we're checking our Facebook status to see if our friends have checked in. Are they okay? Are people we know okay? And it brings us closer into the, the relationships that, you know, they may span the globe, but they're instantaneous experiences of these other people. So that connectivity is coming alive, and it's pointing to the interconnectedness of all things. Well, the downside of that is is some of the the bullying that's happening with the, with social media and how people are are absolutely getting hurt by it. So there's you know it's a two edged sword here with technology. Sure, because when you've got juvenile consciousness using adult tools, you know you don't put it, you don't put an electric chainsaw in the hands of a five year old. It's going to cause problems, you know. So so the you know social media is like an electric chainsaw, and and we've given it to these juvenile delinquents basically who haven't learned how to control their own inner emotional body, and so they're raging with with a tool that's very sharp. And the more the more pain we experience from that, the more compulsion we're going to feel internally to to uplevel our own consciousness, because we don't want to inflict that kind of pain on other people. Right. So there's a there's a purpose behind it. That's part of the growth path. But 
I think yeah, I think you're right about that. I wanted to ask you about your earlier life. When you were growing up mm. as a child, um, did you have, you know, invisible friends or were you uh, aware of of other beings when you were growing up and did you shut it down about the age of seven? Did that happen to you? I don't have a lot of memory of my early years. It's kind of funny. I, you know, I, I, my first memories begin right around the age of five, six. So my early childhood is sort of a blank to me. I don't know why. I'm, I'm not quite sure what I've shut down or what I've turned off from that experience. Um, I know that I did spend an awful lot of time alone and in nature. I was a very contemplative child. I read a lot. I read everything, including, you know, all kinds of fantasy um, you know, every kind of mythology that was out there. I I think I was interested in those kinds of deep existential stories, uh, even at a very, very early age. So, you know, that's kind of my background as to where I came from. I also have, um, or I had for a lot of years, the the sleep terror, you know, where the sleep paralysis where you wake up with a terror and you feel like there's been beings, beings sitting on you and beings in your room and, you know, that kind of thing. I had many, many of those experiences when I was younger, and I've since heard people suggest that that can be indicative of alien abduction, but I have absolutely no recollection of any sort of alien abduction or alien experience. I just have those those sleep paralysis and night terror experiences that I recall. Wow. So it sounds like you're pretty starseed. You're, you're, you're one of us, that's for sure. <laughs> Well, thank you, I think. <laughs> so um, let's talk about the masculine and feminine relationship and how that relationship is changing over time. Mm. Yeah, that's another thing that I like to, again, I like to frame it in terms of the evolutionary aspect because I think we can all relate to having moved from infancy to childhood to adolescence to adulthood. And one of the things that happens in adolescence Male and female separate and distinguish themselves during that time frame. And the men particularly experience that burst of testosterone and they become more aggressive and stronger and more expressive and, you know, more self-conscious, self-confident. And their bodies get bigger and stronger. And, And women kind of do the opposite. Women begin to go inside themselves and develop some insecurities and some sense of, discomfort and they tend to get quieter and and look at their relationship with the world a little different way. And I think that's what's happened with the masculine and feminine during this, you know, era of juvenile humanity. And as we move into adulthood, we tend to the 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 feminine comes back into her own power. She that that sort of quiet insecurity vanishes and she steps into this confidence of of becoming a lover an equal lover on equal footing with the male who is really seeking intimacy no longer seeking conquest and and self-aggrandizement but genuine intimacy that's what adult males look for so as we move into that adult phase i see the masculine the divine masculine and divine feminine consciously and willingly coming together in love and uniting synthesizing themselves within each and every one of us. So we're no longer divided between the heart and the head with the head having dominance over the heart. That's where we've been in adolescence. But the heart is reclaiming its rightful place as lover and devoted partner with the mind. 
And that's, that's the experience that I've had in myself is this deep partnership between my mind and my heart where they're on equal footing and what they now create is something greater than either one of them can do on their own. Uh, how does religion, uh, how do the religious uh, beings that have come into your life react to your new book? I mean, I, I know that Christianity and Buddhism and Wicca and, and New Age, they all have a form of, of basis for, for, for love. How, how does your particular book interweave with those concepts? Well, I think it carries the, the same message that all great religions carry at their core, which is that God is love if you re- and life is love. So if you really look at the message of the book, the message of raindrops of love is exactly that. It's that we are, we are godness incarnate, that we are love embodied, and that all the energy that is condensed in every cell of our body is the energy of love. And that we're here to flower, to express that fully and completely. Um, I, I don't buy into, the, you know, the heaven and the hell and the kinds of punishment and reward approach that a lot of the traditional religions have used, which I think those are control mechanisms, ways to control a juvenile consciousness. But as we mature into this deeper loving relationship with ourselves and with life, what I'm experiencing is that my own value system, my own moral compass actually is dialed higher than the legal system that I'm currently operating within. So I don't need the law to tell me how to behave anymore. I actually behave better than the law would make me behave. (laughs) And I think that is, is part of this shift as well. You know, compassion and forgiveness and acceptance seem to be very important aspects of this book. So what are we to forgive ourselves for and what are we to accept and why are we so encouraged to feel compassion? Mm. <laughs> well, for me, it's it's all about connecting to the divine truth of who we are, which is love. And, and you know, I can't help but come back to that. What we are to forgive ourselves for is any moment that we believed we were less than, not good enough, didn't have enough, couldn't be enough, because all of those stories are falsehoods that we bought into and as a consequence victimized ourselves and imposed artificial limits on ourselves. And that happens out of fear because we fear our own power. We have this deep sense that if we actually discover the truth of who we are, then we'll be forced to have to live it out, and it might be greater than what we can handle. So, uh, you know, you, part of, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> no, I was just going to say that, that that's, to me that's the key, is, is learning to relax and allow the magnificence of what we are to come forward and to trust it and trust ourselves to be able to hold it and use it wisely. I wanted to ask you about your other book, uh, the first book you wrote, mm-hmm. Sacred Economics, The Currency of Life. Uh, I, mm-hmm. I don't have that book in front of me, but I, I'm certainly curious about it. Can you give us a little thumbnail sketch of what this book is about? Yes, I, I wrote that book after I left fi- the financial services business because I had seen so much 
that opened my eyes to how, you know, the financial system in our nation and in the world really works and how capitalism is currently working. And what I came to understand was that most of us are, were conditioned as children to believe capitalism was the best system and that, you know, our, our government system was the best system and our financial system was great. And there's a lot of assumptions that are embedded into that belief that never went, never were challenged. And so part of what I wanted to do was really look at some of those assumptions and deconstruct them and say, is it, is it really true that unfettered growth is, is good for us. And so I talk about, you know, the, the limitations of growth in the book and, and how the growth is great when you're a juvenile, and that's what we were for thousands of years. So, yes, capitalism was a great growth engine for our juvenile experience. But as we mature, you can't eat 12 or 15 peanut butter and jelly sandwiches every day or you'll become morbidly obese. You can't continue to consume more than you need. And the way that you navigate reality becomes much more thoughtful when you become an adult. You learn how to delay gratification. You, you know, things, you become more cooperative versus more competitive. So I looked at all of those underpinnings of capitalism, and what I saw was behaviors that are conducive for juveniles, not behaviors that are conducive for adults. So I, I felt like our current systems were all birthed out of juvenile consciousness and were designed to facilitate and support adolescent thinking and adolescent self-serving behavior. But as we transition into species adulthood, we need new systems that nurture and support adult exchanges, that, that intimacy, that communion, that cooperation, that striving for wisdom versus consumption and exploitation, the, the willingness to be regenerative and to be patient, all of those things, to open and trusting and courageous and compassionate and kind and patient and peaceful. These are the, the next octave of what I would call human consciousness. That's the adult phase. And that's what I think our new systems have to bring out of us as we mature. I'm curious to know how the people that you were involved with on Wall Street, uh, how did they react to your Sacred Economics Currency of Life book? Well, did you get any feedback sure. from any of the people that you used to know <laughs> on Wall Street? Actually, I lost touch with, with quite a few of them before the book ever came out. You know, one of the things that I predicted before I left the business was the economic collapse of 2008. I saw that coming, you know, way before. I left in 2007, and I had been telling my clients for quite some time that, you know, I, I had a fear that currency was going to be worthless very soon and that the real estate market was going to crash and that a lot of the things that were being done that seemed to me corrupt and illegal were going to catch up with Wall Street. And, and I figured if I could see that, sitting in California as a stockbroker on the West Coast, the people in the seats of power knew it. So the fact that they pretended like this was all surprising to them, they had no idea the banks were going to collapse or any of that was going to happen, I never believed that. I know they all knew it, and they were just trying to milk it for what they could get out of it until it happened. And then, of course, we hit the reset button with, you know, TARP and all the other bailouts. 
So we salvaged the system, but at trillions and trillions of dollars of cost and enormous toll on the human psyche and on, on people's uh, sense of security and their homes and investments, everything. So we paid a huge price to give ourselves more years in what I consider a dying system. And I don't think it would have gone over terribly well with the traditionalists on Wall Street. But I have noticed that there is a movement now to discuss capitalism as something that's not necessarily to be taken for granted as the only way, the best way, and the forever way for us to do ourselves. And that pleases me. Do you see the the bartering system maybe coming back to society where people barter, you know, um, things that they make for other things without using currency? Do you see that maybe happening? I think that's a possibility, at least in the short term, for us to move away from, you know, that the the monetary side of the debt currency, which I think creates all kinds of problems. I still see, though, that there's a transactional nature to bartering that is somewhat problematic because a barter exchange requires person A and person B to make an arrangement, and the energy stops. Person A pays you know, something, person B takes something and pays, and then it's done. If you look at how nature works, nature doesn't do direct gifting very often. It has an indirect flow of energy that moves and transforms and changes itself as it goes along. So, you know, a tree puts out a piece of fruit that a bird eats and the bird drops the seed and the seed, you know, makes another tree. And in the meantime, the bird poops and that feeds something else and everything goes around and it comes back to the tree eventually. But the tree puts out what it does because it can't not. That's its purpose is to discover its own isness and express that to its fullest extent, and it doesn't control where the fruits of its own self-expression go. It gives them to the universe, and the universe distributes them. And I think that is the change in expression that humanity is really hungering for, because what I see are so many people who have so many gifts that are stifled and suppressed, and even when they try to bring them out, and give them to the world, this transactional nature of the way that we set up our system inhibits the giving of our gifts. So we're all running around in manufactured scarcity. We don't have to have scarcity. We could have abundance if we simply just gave out of love whatever it is that we create and trust that there's going to be abundance in the field because everybody else is doing the same or, or enough people are doing the same that there is always abundance in the field. Yeah, I And agree that's a deep that. level of conscious trust. Yeah, it's a, we, we haven't had that yet. Yeah. So what that experience will be, I don't know, but it's a very different system than the kind of direct exchange system we have now. So you've seen the blueprint of what's coming is what you're saying. Well, I I think so. I mean, I feel like I've had some visionary experiences where what I see is that we are trying to replicate the, the functions of the human body in our social body, that literally every system we have designed, whether you look at the judicial system or the governmental system, the economic system, the medical system, transportation system, energy system, they're all systems that are patterned after our own body. 
And every one of those body functions and body systems has a purpose and an intention that serves the whole body. But the way that we've designed these systems, because it's been somewhat unconscious, we don't really understand the intention or the purpose behind the systems. We've just made them, and we've tried to extract from them more for ourselves than perhaps we ought to be taking out of the system because we don't really need it. But there's this fear that we have to hoard and we have to be greedy because if we're not, you know, we're going to get screwed by the world. So that lack of trust in the coherence of the system and the abundance of the system is what creates the scarcity. Yeah. Wow. I just love Mm -hmm. the way you talk. I love the way you write. Uh, are you working on a, a new book? What, what's new for you now? Ah, well, I've got I've got another book in the works that I'm hoping I'll have out sometime in 2018, and it's called Dreaming Utopia: A Vision for a Sacred Society, and it kind of takes the the overarching perspective of if we were to design from an adult consciousness perspective a society that would nurture each of us to become full adults, not to be stunted juveniles in adult bodies, but to have an adult consciousness. What would those systems look like across the board? How would we change education? How do we change our governing systems and our our economic systems and our judicial systems and our, our social systems, our religious understandings? So all of those things are fair game for this up-leveling that wants to happen. And and so that's what I want to talk about is what I see as the the blueprint for how those systems might evolve such that every child born into a world where those systems are in place, we can expect to reach full adulthood. I I knew that you had the blueprint for this. Yeah, I did. Oh, good. (laughs) I'm anxious to, to, to read this book. You'll have to come back on our show and... When this new book comes out, everybody will want to know about it for sure. Well, yeah. I'd love to. So I'm looking at the time, and um, uh, my co-host, Arielle, is on the switchboard. Would you be willing to maybe talk to some people that want, might want to call in and talk with you? Absolutely. Okay. So, Arielle, are you there? Yes, ma'am. Okay. So thank you so much for, for being our guest tonight, and I really do hope that you send us your new book. We'd love to have you back on our show. Oh, thank you. Okay. Back to you, Ariel. Okay. Well, Eileen, this has just been fascinating, and I, I love the way you're perceiving things. We do have a few people that have been waiting to speak with you. So um, let's just get right to it. Um, first of all, you're going to be talking to Justin. Let me get the mic open. Hi, Justin. You are on the air with Eileen Workman. Go ahead and ask your question. Hello, Justin. Can you hear us? We can't hear you. Is your mute button on? I'm sorry, Justin, we can't hear you. There seems to be a problem. Um, you, You might want to call, just hang up and call back in. Uh, that might clear it up. Uh, I know that Blog Talk had a little bit of problems this evening, but it seems to be working out. So, um, Justin, try hanging up. If you can hear me, try hanging up and calling back um, to see if we can hear you because I've got your mic open and it doesn't seem to be working. So uh, hang up and call back. Thanks. 
Wow. That was kind of strange. Um, so um, we have another caller. Hopefully um will be able to hear her. You're going to be talking to Chris. Hello, Chris, sweetie. It's so nice to hear from you. Hi, um, Ariel. How are you doing? I'm doing just fine, just fine. You're on the air with yes. Eileen, so go ahead and ask yes. your question. I will. Thank you. Uh, hi, Eileen. Um, I was... I may have missed the answer to my question when I was talking to Fiona. Get you know, uh, uh, but anyway, my thing is is about the conflict between the, our monetary system and consciousness. And uh, mm-hmm. I hear you saying you think we created the monetary system, and I tend to believe it was imposed on us as an enslavement tool. You know, like religion and and other things. And so when, and we can't imagine what a cashless society would be like, but uh, is that what you see coming um, in terms of freedom and consciousness um, and evolution of consciousness? Because there's, I just don't see how you can have any kind of currency system and be an enlightened society. Mm, that's a great perspective, Chris. And, and I do, I agree with you. The, the notion that, you know, we created the monetary system, it was created. We, we were birthed into it. And a debt-based system is designed to manage um, people who can't manage themselves by forcing people to borrow and make hard choices and really you know, restrict themselves from what they have access to, it's sort of like a parental control on self-expression and consumption. And so to the extent that we had juvenile consciousnesses that were functioning as a collective and this patriarchy chose to put a very sharp boundary and control on us, that was the system that was utilized to ensure that juvenile consciousness didn't overconsume out of selfishness and a lack of awareness to some extent. And it was a means of control. Uh, as we evolve, as consciousness matures, we don't need to be controlled from without. We need to be inspired from within. Right. So for me, that's the directional shift. And, and as that inspiration from within takes root, the need to be rewarded for what we create diminishes because when we create from our inspiration and we deliver it into the world, the natural joy of seeing your baby come into the world is joy enough. That's reward enough. You right. don't need to be paid for having your baby. So, yes, I right. see a cashless society yes. ultimately as as freeing us up to fully self-express and give our gifts into a field of abundance. Mm. At the same time, having the adult self-discipline not to over-consume or be squandering or wasteful of the sacred reality that we are part of. So it's a function of responsibility and freedom going hand in hand. Right. I uh, just, you know, on a side, like a, a, a personal note, that about a year and a half ago, I got the message that I had to be willing to lose everything, you know. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. 
you know. And since then, yeah, I've been provided for. But um, since then, uh, it seems more like my things are more of a burden. Um, So trying to release attachments from, Mm -hmm. you know, the stuff that I've accumulated, you know, all my life. So, um, and I find that, you know, there are some things I have to be willing to lose it, to to lose everything. However, there's some things that I really like. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. that's my struggle um, as well. You know, what getting down to the nitty gritty of what uh, I'm expressing as an individual um, and contributing to collective consciousness. So, and I still, you know, money trips us up every time. And so I'm wondering, do you see uh, that happening sooner than what most people could imagine? Well, I think before the last presidential election, I would have said no. I would have said that perhaps we had, you know, a couple of decades even left to make this transformation collective. But I think it's accelerating. The degradation of the existing systems and the revelation of the corruption and the lack of capacity of our existing systems to provide for even our very basic needs is becoming more and more apparent And this notion that we're going to punish ourselves and deprive ourselves into abundance doesn't make any sense, but that's the path that we're undertaking. I've Mm -hmm. never known anything to thrive when you deprive it, but that's the the choice that's being made, and we're doing it more intensely and more of it. Like Mm -hmm. we're going to whip ourselves back into shape by depriving ourselves of even our basic necessities. So it seems to me that that is causing the infrastructure of our current social paradigm to become ever more tenuous and and less trustworthy. So I think it could happen sooner rather than later, and certainly in my lifetime. Well, that's what I'm. That's that's the vision that I hold. You know that it that, that so yeah. I'm I'm happy to hear you well, say that. And I'll say, too, it sounds like you're on the right path because the moment that we sincerely ask the universe, when we open ourselves an invitation and say, I, want, I, I sincerely want my consciousness to be its highest and best, the first question yes. it'll say to you is, really? How about you give up everything you have <laughs> and we'll see how well, serious almost, you are? I almost had to give up my life, but I didn't have there to. There you go. <laughs> yeah, I spent three days in intensive care after my mental breakdown where I was on death's doorstep. So I know that that willingness to sacrifice it all is yeah. part of the game. Yeah. That, that's part yeah. of the life testing to see how serious you are. And and when you sincerely pass that test, then the, the real fun begins. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much. I'm so glad I, I decided to ask you a question. <laughs> oh, well, you thank you for calling more. in. Yes, thank you so much, Eileen. Okay, Chris, thanks for calling in. So good to hear your voice again. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, um, well, Justin has called back in, so let's give this another shot. Hello, Justin, can you hear me? Yes, I can. How are you? Oh, great. Okay. Thanks for calling back in. I don't know what happened before, but we just couldn't get that connection to work. So you are on the air with Eileen, and go ahead and ask your question. 
Hello, Eileen. How are you? It's a good, uh, great I'm show, fine. by the way. No, thank uh, you. Thanks for calling in. No, no problem. Uh, I had uh, a question about my health. I want to see maybe what you're feeling with the energy. Um, it would help, you know, on my spiritual path, too, because it's kind of a block right now. Okay. Uh, mm. Justin? Uh, yes, ma'am. Are, are, Eileen, are you are you working on this, or or is this not something that you want to do on I'm, the air? I'm holding open. Can you can you give me more, Justin? Uh, sure. Um, I like more like more of the question. Or? Yeah. Well, let yeah. me let what me is, just explain this. Yeah, Eileen is is not going to um, do a psychic reading on your health. But she may be able to see something, um, or that you, when you give her information, she may be able to put two and two together if that's what okay. you're wanting. It's it's to deal with it's. Um, I have uh, cancer, and I'm mm-hmm. finished with with the the chemo treatment. The radiation I need to start. They want thirty treatments, but mm-hmm. there's an issue with the um, position, like where the cancer is on my face. Mm-hmm. So I was seeing if you could what maybe what you thought or well here's what I'm going to say is that my invitation to you is to listen deeply to your own inner voice to tune out for the moment all the experts and all the advice and all the recommendations and and assertions that others have made because that's the juvenile consciousness that is insecure in you wanting to be told what the truth is. I'm inviting you to rise into your adult consciousness that already knows the truth, to open your own heart, still your own mind, relax, and allow what the universe already knows to be true to inform you. And then you tell me. Okay. Can you hear me? How does that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. How does that feel? That was that sounds that looks good. I can I I know where you're coming from, anyways. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. uh, you know, sometimes the doctors kind of put you down. It's just like uh, you know, it's kind of going in circles. You you still have the same question every time. You know, you never get an exact answer. Well, well, again, the medical profession is designed to treat you like a parent treats a child. It doesn't trust your wisdom, and you're taught to shut off your own instincts and your own intuition and listen to the voice of these authorities. And they're every bit as human as you, and they're working out of past books and things that they've learned, but the truth is alive in you, and it's changing all the time. It has the freedom to change. And you know yourself better than anybody else can possibly know you. So when you allow that stillness to open you to that higher wisdom, how you should be in yourself and how you should treat yourself, including whatever treatments you choose to invite upon yourself, becomes clearer because you're walking in your own skin, experiencing in real time the effects of what your choices are. And only you, the subjective you that lives in your body, 
knows what that experience is. The physicians on the outside are simply imposing their understanding on you and hoping that your experience is what they think it ought to be. But only you know. Okay. I like that. I can resonate with that. Good. 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 Well, I wish I wish you all the best. Thank you very much. And thank you all. Thanks. Thank you. You're so welcome, Justin. And, and thank you so much for listening to the show and for calling in. Yeah, no problem. Okay. Great show. Thank okay. you. Bye-bye. Bye, Justin. Okay, we have one more caller. Her name is Marilyn, and let me get your mic open. Okay, Marilyn, you're on the air with Eileen. Go ahead and ask your question. Hi, Marilyn. Hi, Eileen. Hi. So my question has to do with, um, I believe, what you're speaking about, um, awakening to this idea that uh, we are love in the world mm. um, as well as connected to, you know, our inner being and higher, highest source, and that perception has something to do with that. And as we, as we have experiences and we perhaps reconnect with our own sense of who we are, true identity, whether those experiences are difficult or joyful, that we kind of move along this um, continuum, if you will. And um, I'm wondering, um, I've gone through some recognition of my own issues around abandonment and betrayal and loss and I'm really you know opening now to living through joy and love if you will mm-hmm. but I have a sense that I'm like not quite there and I'm wondering if there's an actual evolution of perception um, or if that's something that you know um, you might just talk about with me for a sec mm, sure sure Well, one thing that I will say is sometimes what holds us back is this lingering belief that we deserve a better past. I don't know if that's something that you're holding, but when you mention that you have some difficulties and issues, if you're holding that you deserve a better past, then your attention is on changing the unchangeable. And it's indicative, in a way, you're speaking to yourself as if you're not good enough. Because if you already are, your past is like the mountain you've climbed. You don't need to blow it up when you've already climbed it and left it behind you. So forgiving the past, allowing the past to be what it is, and seeing yourself with this fierce love and and appreciation for the one who, who surmounted it, and you've arrived where you are, and you love where you are, then your past is great. It's not a problem anymore. So that, that's one thing you can do to mm-hmm. heighten your present joy. Does that make sense? It does, and it's a really interesting perspective. I hadn't thought about it that way. Yeah, because your past has made you the being that you are, and if you love yourself, no problem. You know, right. that's great. Right. And so, right. so yeah. I, I like to start there. And then the other thing that I'm finding is really coming to the forefront right now is this need for us to talk to ourselves in a different way. Notice the voice with which you speak to yourself. And mm. if you're experiencing inner unhappiness, it's probably because the way you're talking to yourself is unkind. 
that you're criticizing yourself or judging yourself or you're criticizing the world and judging the world, which is just an extension of yourself. So that particular experience of being judgmental, of being critical, of being harsh with yourself creates Mm -hmm. a sense of, of inner discomfort. And that's because it's not good for us. So it's good that we have discomfort but it's also good for us to notice that discomfort and then to to actually make it your practice to speak to yourself only from kindness, from compassion, from love, from patience in a peaceful way, even mm-hmm. if you're suggesting change. Because mm-hmm. what happens, if there's something in your life you want to change, like let's say you want to lose 20 pounds, if you say, gosh, you're, you're a fat, horrible person and you treated yourself abominably and you shouldn't have eaten that submarine sandwich and what's wrong with you, how does that in any way inspire you to be better? It beats right. you down. It, it makes you feel horrible about yourself and you feel not good enough. Right. And when you come from that place of scarcity or not good enough, it's hard to be better. So when you talk to yourself, even during disciplinary, self-disciplinary processes, to be gentle and loving and say, gosh, it took me five years to put on these 20 pounds. Wasn't that interesting? Now I'm going to see what I can change about myself. What experiments can I run to change this aspect of myself? And I'll just run the experiment and see what that brings. There's no judgment. Mm -hmm. There's no punishment. You're not torturing yourself internally and having peace be the reward for when you finally lose 20 pounds. You right. are doing it from a place of peace, which makes it sustainable. Mm-hmm. Because okay. you can sustain peace. Got, got that? Yeah, I, I, I did. Um, I have then a related question, if you don't mind. If I'm perceiving others, like, for instance, my husband or... Um, you know, another person in my life, um, if I'm perceiving him as, and, I, and I'm aware that I, I can do this as the source of a problem or, mm. you know, um, is that because I'm really criticizing myself and I'm just, like, projecting that onto him? The voice that you speak to yourself with is the voice that you're comfortable with. And so that's the voice you turn into the world. So if you hear yourself criticizing other people or judging other people or making other Uh people wrong, you can Uh be pretty sure that the voice inside your head is doing that to you all the time and you're just not even aware of it. It's your normal. So the, the new normal voice, which is to be loving and forgiving and compassionate and kind and understanding with yourself, the more that you practice that in your inner space, the yeah. more that you uplevel your relationships because that becomes the voice you project into the world. Okay. Okay. It's an inside job. This is an inside job first and foremost. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's so really give yourself helpful. all the time and attention and love and energy you need to up-level your own internal relationship and then watch how that impacts your external relationships. Thank you. That's, that's so helpful. Mm-hmm. I really oh, appreciate good. that. I mean, yeah. You're welcome. Okay. You're welcome. Good luck. <laughs> all right. Thank you. Okay. Thanks <laughs> for calling, Marilyn. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, now these are good questions and and really good answers and and you have such a unique perspective 
um, that like other, you know, we've had a lot of self-help kind of authors, but your perspective is really unique and I'm loving it. So thank you, Eileen. Uh, we have another caller. Um, you're going to be talking to Amber next. Okay. Hi, Amber. Oh, boy. You're on the air. Hi. Hello, Amber. You can go ahead and ask Eileen your question. Okay. Um, how can we have greater ease with money and within that concept attuned to our mission here on the planet, especially the younger um, star seeds like I'm 23 and I'm having a bit of a hard time with yeah. that? Yeah. Well, I don't think you're alone in that one. Of what (laughs) that is, you know, like the inherent magic and beauty and everything, and then there's this cold plastic feeling that runs through things. Mm. Well, you're bucking up against the juxtaposition of what is dying and what is wanting to be born. And this, you know, what, what you see, which is the challenge of money, and the way that that separates us and causes us so much stress and struggle, that's the old way. The new way is what's wanting to come alive in you. I can hear it in you when you talk about, you know, wanting to express yourself and and bring forward your gifts and figure out what your purpose is in the world. All of those things, that's part of the new. So the only you know, really solid advice I can give you is to keep your North Star focused on your own becoming, even as you have to continue to participate in this dying system to some extent. But I would encourage you to recognize that you're only playing along with a system that's like in the end of its hospice time, because it's not going to last much longer. So I wouldn't focus unduly on being successful in the existing paradigm. I think you really need to put your attention on discovering what the unique gifts that you have come onto this earth to bring forward are and try to be as creative as possible in figuring out how to manifest those gifts. And if that requires you to you know, shift up your lifestyle a little bit. You know, there, there's so many ways to live in this world that are outside the existing paradigm. It's shocking to me how little we hear about things like intentional communities, which are all over this country. There, there's literally hundreds and hundreds of intentional communities that have been set up where communal living is taking place and people are experimenting with different ways of being. And young people aren't even aware that these communities exist, that they're out there and they're taking new members. So it depends on how adventurous you want to be and how brave you are and what your calling is. But you can find a place where you can land if that's important to you. Okay. That does help a lot. Good. Okay. Is that your only question? Uh yeah, um kind of like I'm I'm kind of struggling with the concept of debt too though because I'm just out of school and um you know we have to work like you know jobs like at like McDonald's or whatever that don't pay as much as the debt asks for. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to figure that out too. The information I've been getting is to open up. 
an online space where I can serve my talents that I've been getting mainly with that. So I guess I have an answer. Well, let me ask you a question. What What do you feel is your gift? What is your talent um, that you will want to express? I'm a writer that makes paintings mm-hmm. of other realities. Wow. Like stories, wow. like narrative stories for like our generation that are fiction, but they have roots in realities. Mhm. Well, it sounds like you've gotten some good advice then. I think there's certainly opportunities, you know, in non-traditional media for you to express that. And here's what I'll say, you know, about the whole debt situation, and this is the part that upsets me the most about what we're currently doing to our young people is, you know, here I'll go back to the economic component, is, you know, 100, 150 years ago, we began to mechanize, and when we put gasoline in machines, we discovered they could work a lot harder, a lot longer, and a lot faster than the human body. And we began to replace human laborers, blue-collar laborers, with machines. And at that point, we made the decision, well, if we educate our minds, our minds can do things that the machines can't do. So these white-collar jobs are where we need to go, and that will keep us safe. And the white-collar industry blossomed. People were told education would, would prepare the way for them to have job security and white-collar jobs. And then we invented computers that run very complex applications and that actually have the ability to learn faster than we can learn and upgrade faster than we can upgrade ourselves. So we're rendering education as a job tool obsolete because the computers are now running faster, smarter, and more capable than the human mind. So we're telling our young kids what we were supposed to tell them 50, 60 years ago. We're still telling them, go to school, get an education, get a white-collar job. And they're discovering, you're discovering, belatedly, this is not so. The computers are moving white-collar jobs out of the industry as well. So the only reason to get an education now is to develop your gifts to the highest and best extent possible and then figure out how to deliver your gifts in the world. The old systems are are not going to support the investment that all the young people are making in these traditional educational processes. I agree with you. I um, actually went into a major to round out my um, abilities. So it actually has nothing to do with writing or painting. Well, it kind of does. Mm -hmm. So, so my my suggestion would be whatever you do post-education, make sure that your passion is front and center and that you're educating yourself around your passion and up-leveling your talents and abilities because ultimately you're here for a purpose and those are the gifts. The, the gift that you feel called to give is the one that the world needs. All righty. Good luck. Okay. Thank you very much. Thanks for calling, Amber. Bye-bye. Bye. Um, you know, that was a really, a really good question because I think there are so many. I think Amber represents a large uh, cross-section of the young star seeds. They're, they're getting out of school, mm-hmm. and they, I don't think, were designed to, to do well 
in an old system. They were designed for a new system. So, yeah, trying to you know stick the the round pegs in the square holes and it it's not working anymore. Uh, but in mm-hmm. the interim, there are there are um, tools for making it easier to deal with money. And sure. um, there, I did a, a a little MP3 several years ago based on the teachings of of Abraham Hicks and the law of attraction. So for for people, especially Amber, if you're you're still listening, uh, go on our website in the vault. And the um, the MP3 is called How to Manifest Prosperity, but it, the techniques really work with everything, and it's taking your higher self, your genuine, authentic self, to a state of of joy and gratitude, and from that place you can manifest anything you want, regardless of the the old system or or not. You can use these techniques, and um, until until we have a better system, this will really help you to have more freedom within the you know existing reality. So you might want to just go download that, put it on your iPod, and listen to it at least once a day for 30 days, and then watch all the changes for the good. Until the new system gets here, <laughs> and hopefully, Eileen, it won't be too much longer. I mean, as we we see that you know. Cash is becoming a thing of the past, and that's kind of scary. Mm. You know, yep. you know. Well, it's, I, I think it's coming in now. I mean, there are you know there are whole groups of people working behind the scenes and underneath the radar on redesigning social architecture, on coming up with new kinds of alternative currencies. So there's no lack of creative energy that's at in motion. You know, I, I know hundreds, literally hundreds and hundreds of people who are who are doing these things just quietly on their own and, and navigating behind the scenes and can interconnecting and interweaving behind the scenes. So I know that it's happening, and it'll be fascinating to see when the next real crisis hits the the global social system as it stands what comes forward to take its place. I think there are things in place that will be shockingly complete by the time they're needed. Yeah. Well, you know, there, you're right. There is, there is an underground, very quiet, you know, as, as Lavendar often says, you know, the star seeds are some of the best kept secrets on the planet mm-hmm. because, you know, we do, we go about things pretty much quietly in the background not making a big, you know, uh, commotion or, or, or a spectacle and just quietly holding the light, making new systems, new, you know, um, sustainable communities. I just love that. Mm-hmm. I just love and it. And I have to say, too, this young generation, I love this up-and-coming generation. You know, I, it gets a lot of flack from people, you know, the the older people particularly, but I see so much potential and so much creativity and the connectedness and the compassion that is so natural in this generation is just wonderful to behold. And I also think that this is the first generation, this current crop of young adults grew up in the computer era. So where most of us were taught to think in a linear way, you know, very flat, two-dimensional, linear thinking, this causes this and this brings about this, 
these young people were all raised in computer environments where simultaneity is taking place. You know, if you're playing a computer game, you can't pinpoint this cause that because there's 17 things happening all simultaneously. So you see that conditions create causality, not one cause and one effect. So shame, blame, and guilt go out the window when we begin to see the wholeness of the experience and how the entire reality is changing itself simultaneously. And, and that's a function, I, I think, of the, that multidimensional experience of, of being able to see reality at play rather than just read about it in a, in a line format. So, <laughs> so we've up-leveled the way that we learn, and, and that changes brains. The brains of kids are, are hardwired differently. Well, and they have different DNA. Lavendar's, I mean, this is her life, her life work that she's been tracking, you know, since the, the mid-70s. And, and she was always told it was for the kids that were coming later, not for the people, mm-hmm. you know, at that time. And, geez, most of our clients were born after um, 1980, a lot of them after 1990. A lot of young star seeds, and it's beautiful to see that they are very awake, but they are a different, mm-hmm. they're a different breed. Their, their DNA is different, and they've come with different programs, codes, missions, and directives. And, uh, yeah, we have, we have great hope for, the, for this generation um, as long as they uh, can disconnect from the cell phones. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. there, there's, there's so much so many problems for star seeds connected to cell phone use that we're going to do a whole program on that so we won't go into it right now but um there yeah that's an interesting to topic and i'd be interested to listen to that program yeah oh it's going to be explosive um because you know people uh, it if you ever you know, go to an airport everybody is looking down at their phone they're totally oblivious to the world around them um, but the fact is that they're all being irradiated every mm-hmm. minute the phone is on. And star seeds are mm-hmm. more vulnerable to that, and they get more health problems from that. So, yeah, we've we got to keep our star seed um, young people um, awake about the dangers of cell phones to their, their future and their mission. So, yeah, yeah. that will be a whole well, other show. <laughs> Yeah, finding show. the balance between technology and nature, I think, is going to be the challenge of this, this current generation. Oh, absolutely. And not losing touch with nature because it's, mm-hmm. you know, especially in in urban areas. I mean, how yeah. much opportunity yeah. do you get to put your feet in the dirt? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. But I, I'm so glad that you were able to be on our show this evening and um, I want to um, tell people your website once again. It is Eileen, E-I-L-E-E-N, Workman, W-O-R-K-M-A-N, EileenWorkman.com. And your, um, your current book, Raindrops of Love for a Thirsty World, and your first book, um, the title went Sacred Geometry, or, no, Sacred Economy. Sacred Economics. Sacred economics. Okay, <laughs> I didn't have it written down in front of me. Sacred economics. So, and when the, when your next book is ready, please let us know and come on back and um, visit with us again and tell us what's new with you. 
I would be delighted. Well, it would be our pleasure, and uh, just want to thank you once again for sharing your time and uh, heart with our audience and anyone who reads your book. And we'll look forward to visiting with you again in the future. Thank you, Ariel. Thank you for having me. Oh, you are so welcome. And um, that's it for us tonight. And from all of us here at Starseed Radio Academy, we thank you for listening, and we will be back next week. Have a great solstice. And until we meet again, remember to count your blessings every day and live in gratitude. Good night, everyone. been listening to Starseed Radio Academy. Visit our website at www.starseedhotline.com.